Hi, this is Jim Thomas. And this is John Thomas. And we were the writers of Predator and Predator 2. And it's been a while since we've seen this. Predator was the first thing that we wrote together. And the original idea, again, the conceit was what would it be like to be hunted. The original thing we were playing with was a band of alien hunters of different types who came here, met around a campfire and decided, okay, I'm going to go hunt this and I'm going to go hunt that. And we said, well, that's going to be too complicated. So we'll use one hunter, one predator, and we'll pick the most dangerous species, which is man. And the most dangerous man is a combat soldier. And we chose Central America because at that time we had special forces. Right. There was a lot done. going on there. It was a hot area of the world. But uh, yeah, we both have a, a background in uh, in fantasy and, and science fiction, both as fans, you know, and uh, great readers of all the, uh, uh, a lot of the great books. And uh, we were, had talked about this. Uh, it was kind of a unique slant about having an Earth base set on Earth and experiencing what it would be like in a human experience to actually be confronted and hunted by something from another world that actually came here and looked at us as a form of sport, you know, entertainment. I guess the idea we were playing with here is that um, uh, the predators had always been lured to uh, hot spots in the planet and there wasn't anything hotter than Los Angeles with all the gang activity and the, the heat waves, so it was a natural hunting ground for him to visit. And sort of tied in with global warming, that there was a uh, uh, really unseasonable period of extreme heat that was going on that, uh, that actually led them into this conflagration here, this gang war that we see opening up here. And it was some commentary about the fact that the, the gangs have gotten so out of control, you know, even then, that we were pushing this a little bit into the future of how crazy it was and, and the, the media sitting right in the middle of it. In fact, the way Stephen shot this was with a lot of uh, live video while the, the action was actually taking place, multiple cameras. It was actually a lot of fun to be on the set. We had a lot of difficulty with this scene with the uh, timing of that explosion, I remember. It was... Yeah, that was a big one. Right. It was difficult. That and Henry Kinji's high fall off the top of the building later in this scene. Yeah, that's Henry Kinji. He's one of the great uh, stuntmen around, a great driver, and just a terrific guy, too. Had a lot of fun with him. Probably the nicest guy you'll ever want to meet, too. <laughs> Completely against this image. Tony it seemed like, a, if I remember right, a fairly smooth production. It actually came together very fast. Once Joel had convinced the studio to do the sequel, we went and pitched this story, which we sort of made up pretty quickly. I think they set a date, so then we were sort of up against the gun. And I think after we had met with Stephen and um, fleshed everything out, I think we wrote a script in three weeks, which was, was fast for a feature script. And then from there, everything just came together pretty well. See, all the problems had been solved in the first one. You know, the, you know, Stan Winston knew how to go into production with the, you know, with the creatures and the suits, and uh, the heat vision had been all worked out. We'd had a lot of, lot of problems in the first one, just how to do that. And then they finally used this, the, you know, this video process, which is very effective. It's all black and white, but you can assign colors, so you can create mm -hmm. almost anything you want. Mm -hmm. So all, a lot of those things had been solved. And then we didn't have the difficulties of being on location like we were in the jungle. So it, it actually was pretty smooth. They're trying to get inside the headquarters. We're keeping them pinned down. 
by the Jamaicans. They shot down one of our choppers. That's Dick Donner's brother right there. The policeman there in the background. Okay, we're not giving single, give me some cover. Of course, the order of the day was actually more and more firepower to uh, sort of eventually come up against the Predator and his array of uh, weaponry, which we had expanded and, um, you know, had been able to uh, employ, you know, during the course of this, things that hadn't been seen so far in the first one. Now, Danny's not driving the car. I actually think it's Henry Kinji that's driving yeah, the car oh, from the back seat. Yeah, Henry was <laughs> crouched in the back seat. Again, like in the first movie, the idea was to have the Predator observing the most dangerous game and then choosing who was most worthy of a trophy. Uh, in this one, he wasn't, he wasn't seeking any kind of revenge. He was just here because it was hot, there was a lot of action, and he was, he was trying to see who would be uh, fair game, and it turns out to be Danny because of his heroics here. On Predator, we were in the jungle for about six months, rewriting a lot of scenes. And on this one, we were on the set pretty much every day. Yeah, we had worked with Stephen Hopkins from the very beginning, uh, traveling to England to uh, go over development of the story with him. And he, he had a lot of input. And uh, so we stayed with him very close all throughout the filming. Uh, and we did change a number of things as problems cropped up, you know, with the storyline. But generally, it went, it went fairly smoothly with Stephen. He was uh, very talented. There's always little tweaks to be made as far as dialogue when if the actor or the director particularly has a concern about I think it affects the character or they don't like it, you know, there's always things like that. And then you run into elements where a practical situation is having difficulty working and you basically have to change it around very quickly or come up with another element to it that allows it to be done much more efficiently or looks better. Or dreaming up something as simple as let's put the alien skull into the trophy case. Right. You know, it's just sort of one of those spur of the moment things. Well, we should try that out. Why not? Let's see what it looks like. Otherwise, it's a lot of socializing and uh, that was one of the real treats of being able to hang out with a, a cast like this. It's uh, such diverse personalities and... and uh, uh, really a good bunch of people. And, and in both cases, both films, uh, really nice people and, and a lot of fun to just, you know, just hang around in the set. And, right. and there's a sense of history in that, you know, the first one spawned two governors, you know. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and uh, here's Henry with his uh, scorpion icon. <laughs> uh, Which is so funny, the, the parts that he sometimes plays, he seems like, you know, such an animal, but he is actually just one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet. And this is the entrance of the Predator with the first camouflage element that went on. Sergeant, any of your people in the building? No. Let's go. Can't let you in there. Hyman's on his way here. Yeah, Hyman, make you kiss my sweet ass. Come on. God damn it, go with him. Now, in terms of casting, I think it was primarily Joel and Stephen that uh, selected everybody. We were certainly in on early on with meetings with Danny and uh, everyone in the cast and, uh, you know, sort of tailored some things to who the characters were. Um, 
changed some things in the script too. And asked their opinions about the characters, what they thought of them, which was a lot of fun, actually. shooting this all in downtown Los Angeles and a lot of the background we had, the, the uh, extras were dressed like street people and it was always difficult when it came time for lunch to sort out the... <laughs> right, the extras from the uh, real denizens of that area. I mean, this was the setup to, uh, you know, the first uh, sort of semi-visual of the Predator here and uh, this was a great stunt that Henry pulled off doing a backwards high fall off this building, but unfortunately uh, we almost lost Henry because the torque of the blanks going off in the gun pushed him into an arc that was a little further out than he intended, and he almost missed the airbag at the bottom of this fall, and everybody held their breath for a couple of seconds, and we were tremendously relieved that he landed safely. He also had to go off backwards, firing weapons, and then turn because the shot called for him being face down, which was a pretty tricky stunt. Right. He's a fantastic stunt guy. They, of course, removed the airbag. This is the first meeting of the antagonist and the protagonist here, and Danny sees the rippled outline of the Predator in his, uh, his camouflage mode. That actually came from a dream that Jim had. He dreamed that there was a, a silver orb that had a light source inside of it with a tiny hole. And he went up and peered into it, and the inside of this spherical orb was coated in a mirror. And there was a chrome man, a little chrome man standing in the room. And so he was everywhere and nowhere at the same time. And you really couldn't see him because he was reflected everywhere until he moved. And then you could see the ripple, the leading edge of him moving. And that was kind of the basis for the theory behind that. And we tried to explain that to people. And they, they really didn't know what we meant you know, until we refined it a little bit, writing it down. We used some natural um, aspects of uh, camouflage that you find in nature, mm -hmm. like lizards, like chameleons and things. And... Um, octopus that can immediately change their skin tone to match the background chemically. And the predator was like that, except it was uh, an electromagnetic sort of field that was generated by his suit that he wore that basically had an electro-optical sensing device that basically sampled the background, whatever was behind him, and then just projected it all around him, you know, which is very interesting. After the film came out, uh, it was screened in the, uh, in the Pentagon, and they had a, uh, a general there in uh, procurement who looked at the film and the camouflage in effect and said, I want one of those. And they started on development of a camouflage system, which they never implemented, I don't believe, but they developed it for not only foot soldiers, but vehicles like tanks, that they would have a net of electro-optical sensors that could basically kind of take an image of the background and change these little... Um, 
plates like a liquid crystal display. And then whatever was draped in this or wearing it would just vanish into the background <laughs> like that. So it was, it's kind of a strange story of, you know, life uh, imitating art, so to speak. You know? We did know that uh, what we wanted to do, at least in the first one, was um, try to uh, prolong as long as we could, you know, what this creature was. Because the minute you put somebody in a rubber suit, it's it's difficult to, to keep the suspense up. So by having just a, a, a presence and then a movement and then um, this camouflage effect and then to reveal that there was this creature and then to pull the helmet off and have something entirely alien underneath it that was always the challenge to get that right and that was something we had right from the very beginning and that was the toughest part to pull off which but that's what really makes it he must have been killed out here Ruben is another terrific guy we had a lot of fun on the set with him it's about 35 40 feet no rope no ladder it's been a while since we've been back here. This set was very realistic to walk onto it. It was pretty graphic, as if the Predator had really been there. It took the effects people a full two days working on this set to fully dress it and uh, get it the way they wanted it. What the fuck is going on? This is not good, Mike. Not good at all. I want a real name on this joke, okay? You got it. Mike? We worked in Los Angeles downtown for a better part of two weeks, I think, in this this one particular location. A lot of things were um, uh, taking advantage of the the, the color of Los Angeles downtown, um, alleyways, uh, the streets. I think this whole sequence in here was a better part of a week. Yeah, plus the uh, night shoots. And we actually had to hire some of the... Uh, Residents there to help us out with uh, large squirt bottles filled with ammonium or ammonia to keep the uh, the rats away from the power cables that were had a propensity to gnaw on everything they they could find. <laughs> it was it was pretty realistic shooting down there. They actually landed this helicopter right down. This is right down near uh, Spring Street. And yeah, it was right on Spring Street, right off a block off Spring Street. And here's the intro of uh, of Adam uh, Baldwin and uh, Gary. <laughs> Gary. Very funny guy. We had a lot of fun on the set with him. Oh, yeah. He kept everyone howling the whole time. He was, <laughs> he was a great guy to work with. The Gary Busey character um, was, uh, was always somebody that we envisioned as being, you know, the... Uh, that part of the government that knows something that no one else knows about and, and, uh, and is investigating. Uh, Danny's character was always uh, the part that we envisioned for Arnold. It was Peter Keyes, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. As a kind of a nod to uh, the Mr. Keyes character in uh, E.T., we thought that was an interesting name. The idea of doing this in the future, we wanted to do it just slightly in the future to play with the idea of what the environment might be like with a little bit in change of automobiles, subcultures, things like that. But we didn't want to push it too far in the future. So it was a little difficult to stay present but also push the, the envelope just a bit. And playing with the idea that there was this global warming that was a little out of control. That everybody's carrying water bottles and complaining about the heat all the time. 
Yeah, in this version of Los Angeles, all the uh, the hookers are uh, licensed, and the uh, all the street hoods are developing very colorful personalities. In the urban environment, the police represented the, the specialists, you know, the highly trained people who, who do work that nobody else can do, whereas the first one, you know, the combat soldiers, they were a, an elite special forces rescue team, very highly trained and had their own sense of uh, motivation and doing the job, you know. So there are correlations between between the two that we tried, tried to maintain. But, you know, it's a different era and a different, uh, whereas the, the urban environment in Predator 2 was in the midst of kind of a social breakdown and the police were sort of the last vestige of civilization, if you will, you know, that, that came up against something that was completely uncivilized in our aspect, but, but civilized in in their own way, you know, as being sort of a noble hunter, you know, uh, although we would probably wouldn't look at it like that. But, but truly, in, in both cases, people who think that they've seen everything, they're the ones that are out there, you know, they're, there's nothing new to them, and then all of a sudden they're confronting something that just is beyond their imagination. We couldn't come up with anything other than in police. And originally, wanting to set it in New York, it might have been a little grittier, a little tougher, a little more, you know, L.A. Is, is certainly got its dark side, but not nearly as much as you could portray in New York City. It was just easier to do it here in Los Angeles. Yeah, we had talked about doing it in New York, and they sort of ran the numbers and uh, looked at it. It would have been considerably more expensive to uh, to film it in New York, so it was it was one of those. But a lot of it was done on location in, in Los Angeles. I mean, there were certainly stage work, but uh, a lot of locations. He was involved here. You know how it is. We all have a job to do. Now, I'm sure we can respect each other's situation and act responsibly. Well, cooperation is my middle name. I'll see you around. It was a lot of fun hanging around on the set with all of these actors because they, they all have such diverse backgrounds. They're interested in so many different things, not just in motion pictures, but theater and music and uh, involved in all kinds of things. Uh, Ruben, was, uh, he's quite a stage actor, and, of course, Maria Cachita is a great singer and entertainer. And uh... Well, Ruben, I think, was originally uh, a lawyer. Yes, he was. Not only a musician, but a you know, lawyer. There's a shitload of that for the ticket. Maybe King Willie brought in some outside talent. He's making his big move. Bro would have split the moment he heard the action. More than one, we would have seen them. Whoever did this waited until the last minute and then took out four men armed with machine guns by hand <laughs> and then got by us. Maybe we should give him a job and put him in the payroll. So me and my partner bolt up the stairs. Somebody is screaming bloody murder. You gotta hear this. You gotta hear this. Hey, hey, I forgot to tell you. See that guy there? That's Ferris replacement. This guy's Jerry Lambert, the Lone Ranger from Rampart Station. That's the wrong Ranger? Yeah, I thought he was here to fix the air conditioner. <laughs> I said, lady, you are under arrest. And she said, why? I said, because your husband is dead. You killed him. And you know what she said without missing a beat? Uh, no. She said, I stabbed that son of a bitch plenty of times. He never died on me before. <laughs> I think that was based on a real story. Someone we knew that was a paramedic that that actually happened to, wasn't right. that right? Yeah, that's right. Big mistake. 
Yeah? Yeah. All right. Like your last partner got shot? And Maria's aim missed the first time we shot the take, and Bill was sort of grimacing for real. <laughs> We didn't start working on the sequel until um, after the the comic book was a uh, success, and it was Joel was the one that was able to convince the studio that we should do the sequel. And our first efforts were to get a script for Arnold, so we worked out some storyline, primarily working with the idea that Arnold would come back and reprise the role. But then when it fell out, then we had to reinvent the idea of. The Predator just coming down and having nothing to do with, you know, the original cast, but uh, just that he liked to hunt and had been coming here for a long time. Joel always brings a lot of energy to these things. He's also terrific with being able to bring these very interesting casts together. I mean, he, he always has great ideas about who we can get and who would work well together. He just supplies, a, a, you know, great energy. He, he supports his people very well, too. I mean, he's... Uh, people that have been working with him for a long time. He really goes to bad for him. He really shines in post-production. He loves post-production. He brings a lot into the mixing and the you polish mm -hmm. of the film. But on Predator, he was down in the jungle with us all the time, sitting out there, more like the line producer than anything. But uh, he, Joel just brings a great energy to this stuff. And, and people that want to try innovative things, if there's a way to do it, he'll give you a good shot at it. He's a consummate uh, deal maker and dealing with the uh, studios whenever there's a budgetary problem, you know, and if uh, more funds are needed for the budget, he's really an expert and, and he, he really knows knows how to put a film together and how to breathe life into it, you know, when there's trouble. So as, you know, we've seen throughout his career, uh, people have a lot of confidence working with Joel. So he's, yeah, he's great. And plus he's just full of great stories, you know, from his time in the industry. And he's just, he kept everybody howling you know it's it's actually a kind of uh, impediment to work sometimes because people love to sit around and listen to joel tell all these great stories you know i, I know we sure did now, the set design here was that was larry paul's um mm -hmm. sort of aztec inspired penthouse he did a wonderful job the idea of using Jamaicans as uh, gang members was something that we originally read in a New York Times magazine about uh, Jamaican drug lords moving into parts of the United States. There was actually a big shootout, I think, in Kansas City with Jamaicans and uh, other gang lords, which we thought was very bizarre that they'd be into the United States. So we just moved them into Los Angeles, but I don't think anything like that ever happened. But in the casting, we found out that there was a fairly large Jamaican subculture right in Los Angeles. What the fuck are you doing now, man? You're crazy! Key Willie says, not only do I have to kill you, but I have to take your soul. <laughs> Fucking voodoo magic, man. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I tell you what I believe. Shit happens. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
something to see this beautiful set all torn apart. Yeah, it all disintegrated within a few seconds. Writing action sequences is a lot of fun. The tricky part is writing them too elaborately and then realizing how difficult it is to realize them. Although it's getting easier and easier to do. Right, but at this particular time, we had to be conscious of how much cost it would entail and um, you know if it was indeed even possible. Most of the physical action sequences are pretty straightforward, but then we have a lot of the visuals and uh, special effects that, that really um, are quite expensive. So that always has to be a consideration. We saw the, the new spear and of course the net and the, uh, the new design of the uh, arm dagger. We just sort of cooked that up between the two of us, you know, just discussing various forms of uh, implements that uh, hunters use, you know, uh, earthbound and sort of extrapolating that to make them uh, other, otherworldly. And we sort of tossed it back and forth and we had a number of other devices too that were actually never implemented in this film that were just, we just had too much. So we sort of took the best of what we had. The conceit in the original Predator, of course, was always what would it be like to be hunted by a dilettante hunter from another planet. And we tried to use all the rules that we could think of about hunting, about camouflage, about um, seeking out the most dangerous game, not killing anything that wasn't a threat to you or couldn't protect itself, like someone unarmed or a, or a child, or the idea of taking trophies, selecting the right kinds of weapons based upon your prey. And uh, we just, just created a whole list of, of weapons and techniques and used... Uh, probably only about half of them. We've probably got a list around somewhere of a lot of different weapons and devices that uh, the Predator could have used. We didn't hear that. Let's go. You're the boss. Wait, let's go. Let's see Cheryl tie up. Hey, nice flashlight. Mind if I borrow it? operating in East LA, 100 keys a week. Why isn't he skinned? And who are these assholes? They're Jamaicans, King Willie's boys. That doesn't make sense. This was a voodoo ritual. I've seen it all before. They took his heart out. What for? Terror tactics, man. You know, to scare the shit out of their enemies. King Willie. Who the hell is King Willie? King Willie, voodoo priest of the LA posses. Ran the terror gangs for Edward Siega in Jamaica. Julie got too powerful. The Jamaican chiefs will make a move without his approval. So what the fuck happened? Shit! There was a fellow uh, from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department who advised us for a number of weeks on the uh, uh, crime scene sort of physiology and the setup, and uh, he also helped the ordinance people a lot with the, with the firearms and things like that. We had done a lot of research, actually, on uh, urban crime and things like that. So, but definitely, the police involvement helped us out quite a bit. 
Just like on the first one, we had a military advisor who actually worked out the, the cast for a week or so before they started working in the jungle, just to give them the idea of techniques and behavior and attitude. But otherwise, we're just winging this stuff. <laughs> what is that? Looks like a spear tip or something. This is a restricted area. I want it cleared immediately. You're walking on physical evidence. All just right, we'll take care just of Just back off. Lieutenant, I'd like a word with you in private, please. I need two units over here. You put two more over here. They say the persistence is one of your most outstanding qualities. Hey, look, I know this is your show, but I now, just... you're not listening to me. You got a big nose, and you're sticking it too far in my business. Now, maybe you can hear this. The next time you cross me, you're going to turn up missing. The R rating on this film, it's hard to remember how difficult it was or not. I think Stephen had, had to do some cutting because the original version that came out was a little over the top, but I think he, he sort of bowed to their uh, wishes and, and cut back a few scenes, and they sort of barely squeaked in with, a, with an R rating. I guess we were just you know, focusing on trying to keep it uh, gritty and real. I don't know if that always works or not. Who the hell are you, Keys? The last person in the world you want to fuck with. You want to make me proud, kid? Take your bag of tricks, stay with them, find out where they take her. Uh, meet me later at the Cito's. And be careful, these guys are good. Hey, don't worry, Lieutenant. Surveillance is my specialty. Okay, then, just get going. <laughs> Go get him, Long Ranger. Hey, Danny, look here. We gotta take this real cool. These guys sure aren't the DEA. But it's still Jesus' party. You stick around, stay out of sight. I'll meet you at 1 o'clock. We'll take a good look at that room, okay? Hey. Hey, wait for me. Danny boy, no hero stuff, understand? It was video image that did all the uh, the point of view heat vision on this? I think so. The technology had come quite a way since the first one, so that moved the process along much faster. I can't remember what was shot and not used in this film. My recollection is that pretty much everything we wrote was in here. It might have been modified. I think we had more, we had some street scenes, sequences with the predator moving in the urban jungle, camouflaging against buildings and in parks and things that we thought was a lot of fun, which would have just required too much time. Again, we came up with a whole list of, of things that would be fun to see the predator doing in a city. We know how he would camouflage in the jungle against trees and bushes and things, but in the, in the city, alleyways, cars mirrored surfaces. We had a lot of fun with that. They just didn't shoot much of that. Yeah, leaping from building to building and across the tops of cars and in front of uh, storefronts, those effects were all fairly involved and uh, that kind of thing adds up very quickly expense-wise. So we use the uh, important ones that serve the story the best and, uh, and let the rest go. The chase over the rooftops is also quite involved. I, I believe we uh, cut some of those elements back also. Yeah, with the advances in uh, digital technique, as we've seen in recent films, the effects in this almost look very, uh, you know, they're very archaic. 
it's amazing to think what we could do now. I mean, given the same situation, we almost anything you can imagine can be pulled off completely uh, realistic. Sure, with the image captures they have now, you could take the predator and have him do almost anything. Which quite often is the way we wrote that his actions were, that he was doing things that we didn't think they could actually do, but we were just trying to give the sense of how the Predator movie. In the, in the first movie, we had him, you know, the jungle was much more of a character than actually came out in the film, and we were letting the Predator move through the trees in a way that probably was impossible at that time to carry off. On the first Predator, the whole camouflage effect was an experiment that was taking place in the jungle, as well as the heat vision. It was something that nobody had ever really done before. Yeah, it was technology that broke some new, new ground in films, which was one of the things that made the film unique. It was a, a few wrinkles that people really hadn't seen before. Of course, by Predator 2, they had everything down, so it was much, much easier to do. The music is absolutely crucial to it, especially in the first one with the, the it's the absence of music too that I, I think helps sell it. It's, uh, it's, it's when to stop the music and let the background, you know, the, the sounds of the city or the jungle or whatever's there too, you know. I, I think that the track was wonderful, you know, the score was wonderful. It was Alan Silvestri did, uh, did both of them, I think, didn't mm -hmm. It's pretty interesting in the first Predator, from the time that Arnold goes into the canyon and makes his weapons and then sets the bonfire and issues the scream, the challenge of the Predator to come forth and do battle. You can almost turn the sound off and put Wagner on an opera. You know, the whole thing is very kind of mythically operatic. You know, it has that kind of dreamlike quality to it that I, McTiernan uh, did a, such a tremendous job with, you know, uh, visualizing that, you know. There's very little dialogue until the end anyway, but uh, the story was that strong, and uh, you could move it forward in just basically uh, sound effects and no no dialogue whatsoever. So it was, it was pretty interesting in a way that it, that really became the kind of core of the mythos, you know, the mano a mano, mm -hmm. and the, the hero beaten down and rising from sure certain death and defeat, you know, and lucky to have survived an experience like that. Now, speaking of mano a mano, our very first meeting with Arnold on the first movie was in a hot tub uh, <laughs> at, at John steam Davis room. in a steam room. Yeah. Arnold wanted to meet us, you know, mano a mano. It was very funny. It was very typical Arnold, you know, sitting around in a hot tub discussing how we're going to do this movie. It was a real hoot. <laughs> Uh, Jim and I were both lifeguards here in Southern California in the Santa Monica, Venice area and, um, before we ever got into the film business many years ago. And I actually, uh, Arnold used to come down to my uh, tower with photographers when he was bodybuilding and do lots of poses. And I had gotten to know him and I ran into him um, uh, one morning uh, at a deli in Santa Monica somewhere and we, we had uh, breakfast. And he told me at that time that he was going to be governor of California someday. Hmm. And uh, <clears throat> this was back in, like, 1975, you know, 76. Well, it was true that uh, on the set down there in Mexico, uh, he talks a lot of politics. He's a very, very, mm -hmm. very sharp guy and certainly had his opinions. And we got into some interesting discussions of 
Yeah. It was more than just talk about you know muscle and stuff. He's but he, he's a total. Um, Arnold was a total motivator and team player. That the studio had an entire gym ship down there, a very large gym, and we took over a conference room and turned it into a massive gymnasium. And um, at 5 a.m., he was beating on the doors of the other actors, rousting them out of bed and getting them into the gym for their workout before they have to go out in the jungle and, and stalk around there. Uh, and uh, during the course of the filming, Arnold got uh, very ill, as many people on the crew did. I still can remember he was running a very high uh, fever and he was dehydrated and the particular scene where he was actually underneath the log, hanging on the log, as soon as we took him off the log we had to plug the IVs back in him because he was so dehydrated but he would never hear about uh, stopping filming or quitting. You know, He was a tremendous uh, trooper and he really, in that way he just inspired everybody to uh, to do their best because it was you know it's difficult circumstances being in the jungle when it was 103 degrees and 90 percent humidity and you know poisonous snakes and spiders and fire ants and every other god-awful thing you could imagine uh, it was difficult on everybody but arnold was a he was a true example of uh, of getting the job done he was a great professional so he was he was great to be around but everybody in predator 2 was a good sport too you know danny was up for anything he'd never really done that kind of thing before you know lethal weapon he had a lot of fun with but he uh, he really got into it he actually enjoyed it he was you know give me a little more of this stuff i like this and uh, gary was a real kick a lot of fun yeah everybody there was uh, an interesting bunch of people that's mm-hmm. one of the real treats and then all the stuntmen you know hanging out with the stuntmen their characters too a lot of fun you know and these are big stunt pictures so you've got a big stunt cast there, and uh, they've all got very interesting backgrounds and personalities. And uh, it's, it's a pretty rich culture. Everybody gets to know each other very well, and then and all of a sudden these things are just over with. It's like one day they pull the plug and the movie's over, and everybody just disappears. And it's kind of a shock. You know, you've had so much fun and gotten to know these people, and then off doing something else. Yeah, there's only the hope that you'll work together again in the future sometime and kind of continue on those relationships, you know, but you, you never know. That's showbiz. I'll take care of him. No. Let him go. We're too close. There was a big difference working with Stephen and John McTiernan, primarily because with John, we had a concept that had never really been done before, and we had an action picture that had to be shot, and we were working down in the jungle, so a lot of things were being discovered on the spot. John had the complications of dealing with uh, visual effects that hadn't been done before, and yet he still had to direct this, his cast and, and do an action picture in the jungle hear a lot of the things that had already been resolved and it was, I think Stephen was taking a different approach. Yeah, their styles were quite different as John came more from a classic film background and, and Stephen had done a lot of music videos prior to um, shooting Predator 2 and, and he had a very interactive, very live uh, sense of, you know, movement of the camera and a lot of handheld and uh, he wanted the scenes to reflect that kind of sort of kinetic energy. It's been everywhere. We've been on it for the last three days. And they're not looking for drug dealers. Yeah, they've been setting up these weird radar sensors all over downtown. I mean, I used my whole repertory just to keep up with them. I had scanners on them, but they scrambled my shit up. Man, equipment I can't even begin to touch. And then this morning, 
I lost them. We lost them. Lost them where? Burning in industry. I mean, like they fucking disappeared. The slaughterhouse district? Yeah, and in this heat, wolf. I mean, B.O. and barbecue. So whatever Keys is looking for, he's found it a damn close to it. Leona, I want to meet with King Willie. Willie and I seem to have the same problem. In the meantime, you come with me. Mike, it's impossible. Just do it. Okay, we've only got 22 minutes remaining on safe window of operation. Let's verify that final telemetry check. Start your test now. Scan track three, two, one. Mark. Number six, power up on the UV banks. We're complete on the lower UV banks. Ready for testing. Second level, check for ambient temperature variations. You got two minutes. Now, these sequences that were done in this uh, meat packing place were, were very fascinating. This is something that today would probably totally be done digitally, but here they actually used a... What was it? Something like... Uh, was it cornstarch or some... It was like a constituent of Fuller's Earth, wasn't it? It was, it was a mineral uh, that uh, was sort of like mica that was very reflectant but very light and would hang in the air uh, quite a bit. And then they, they added some cornstarch and some other kinds of dust to, uh, to give it that particular look um, of, a, of a kind of a radioscopic uh, dust you know, that, would, that would mark the predator so their sensors could, could pick it up. We're not there yet. pathologist in the city, and they've cut me out completely. Any way you can get a look at any of the evidence the feds have collected? I mean, they must have run tests. It won't be easy. Doctor, I pried this from Danny's hands. This is what took him up into the rafters. It has almost no weight. But it cuts like steel. Let me see. We are now at 150,000 times normal magnification. Astonishing. This material doesn't correspond to anything on the periodic table. Lieutenant, what the hell is that thing? I don't know, but you don't buy it in a hardware store. Military? Uh, good guess. Either someone that got away from it or something they want real bad. Keys. Ah, we're getting closer now to what I... Yeah. Easy kid, put your gun away. King will ever see you now. The Jamaicans, I don't think, were professional actors. Um, as I said, there was uh, we were surprised to find out that there was a, a subculture there in Los Angeles. But I think this was sort of like the first time some of these guys had been uh, in front of a film. camera. Yeah. Yeah. You want some ganja, man? <laughs> <laughs> This was one of those alleyways where there were rats running everywhere. And yeah, rats the size of medium-sized dogs. They were... You could almost believe this stuff actually taking place when you were down there at night. Things better ride. You know, you guys really ought to cut down. <laughs> a lot of real locations were used. Uh, 
they just dressed this alleyway. But that's not much different than the way it looked during the day. Yeah, a lot of that's real garbage, not Hollywood garbage, actually. The guy who played King Willie here, Jim, was he was a classically trained actor, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he was very good. Another very interesting guy to hang out with. Had done a lot of um, Shakespearean plays. Not sure where he came from, but uh, he was good. He really got into this role. Izzy, you on talk to me. Izzy, you offering Fevers. Tell me why, Babylon, Mr. Policeman. I want some information. Information? Hmm. About the one that's doing all the killing, Aya. He killed your people. Now mine. I think you know who he is. <laughs> I want him. I don't know who he is, but I know where he is. I think there's a little Shakespeare in this scene. The other side. What are you talking about? The spirit world, man. You see, it's always the same. There's no stopping what can't be stopped. No killing what can't be killed. Hey, make sense, man. This thing that's killing your people and mine. It's interesting when you're doing something on location and, and you're using extras who, who are supposed to be street people and locals and because you attract a lot of looky-loos, people that are standing around watching, and you sometimes can't, as we said, you can't tell the difference between the... You know the uh, the dressed extras and the real uh, the real citizens of the streets there, and a number of times a few of them wound up actually joining the cast. In a lot of these places where we were shooting here at night, there really wasn't much around. I mean, this this is part of the city that pretty well closes down. It was kind of spooky coming and going, because they would we'd be working there all night. It was always kind of a relief to get to the set and uh, where you had some security. Otherwise. You know, there wasn't really anything else going on around you. This was a scene that came out pretty much the way we had written it, described it. I think King Willie's death was pretty much the way it was uh, it was scripted. I don't remember a battle. There wasn't much of a battle that could take place. And the Predator, of course, is uh, taking the opportunity to gather up a few more trophies here and there as he's luring Danny in. The original idea we had for Predator was a creature that was probably more lithe, 
um, able to move faster through the trees, a little more simian-like. But some of the, the artwork that we had originally done was somewhat close. The, the warrior aspect was always there, but it was, it was taking this kind of stuff to someone like Stan, who then has this wonderful imagination and, and is an artist and starts sketching things and adding the, the little accoutrements, and then the scale, the size, um, increasing. That was one of the first things that changed. We had a, a predator that was much quicker on his feet than you know, the way the predator evolved, but that's the nature of it. You know, that's, that's yeah. In the beginning when we conceived it, we actually had ideas about uh, his home planet, actually the environment he came from, the gravitational forces and how they would affect what kind of a creature he was, what his endoskeleton was like, his musculature, uh, how he could move, uh, the fact that, uh, I think in the original, his feet were actually prehensile. They mm -hmm. could actually grip things, so he could basically run through the trees with amazing speed. He had this incredible dexterity and agility that was mind-boggling and like Jim was saying originally he was, uh, was a much smaller creature but incredibly uh, deadly and adapted to hunting you know do what he does in a variety of environments uh, and we took all that stuff to uh, Stan and, and discussed it with him and and the studio had ideas as well as uh, the director and, and it gradually became larger and larger you know because it, we needed a uh, more of a physical presence, you know, to uh, to go up against Arnold in the first one, you know, which is it's difficult to make the audience believe that Arnold is going to be in jeopardy. You know, like a lot of his films, he's portrayed as being a superhuman, you know, no harm could ever come to him. And that was that was the our thrust in the first one to make him part of an ensemble cast, make him very human. So when he actually came up against this overwhelming uh, creature that you really believe for a moment that he might not make it, you know, he, he might die. So that was, that was kind of the beginning of the, uh, of the, of the franchise of the character and the personality of, of the, uh, of the predator, of the creature. So it was interesting. Take the metro along the beach line. I'll pick you up at the Baron station. Now, this was one of those futuristic things. They talk about the metro. That was before Los Angeles had a metro. And we used BART in San Francisco for some of the shots. We had written a big scene that took place in this uh, taxidermy shot That's that right. was, was never used. We had a mm -hmm. pretty interesting character in there, and the predator actually went in and... It was kind of scrutinizing all the trophies. Yeah, <laughs> cruising around and, and admiring them, and then left. Mom and I won't be very long. You sit still. We'll be back in a few minutes. All right? Come on, honey. Yes, dear. And this is another example of the predator not harming someone who is obviously innocent. And even though he has a, he analyzes the gun and he realizes that it can't harm him, then he leaves him alone. We always envisioned, of course, it was written that way, that more personality. We saw the Predator as having, you know, more of a personality that we could we could learn about. And, and of course, the only way you can do that is, is movements. And we made a big thing in our first script about his hearing. He had very, very sensitive hearing and how he could fine-tune it and tune out things in the jungle. And just an attempt to show what it might be like to be in this creature and his patterns of observation.
That little refrain with the trumpet was the same scene in The First Predator where Bill Duke is lamenting over Jesse Ventura's body mm-hmm. in the jungle. It's always a little strange taking a movie company to a real cemetery and shooting. Here's the issuance of the challenge. We were playing with the same idea here that, like in the first one, with a hard-bitten commando who had seen virtually everything that combat had to offer, being driven to uh, near madness, pushed to his absolute limits of physical and mental abilities, and then having to survive in a way that he had never really been trained to do. And the same thing here with a, you know, an L.A. cop used to gang warfare and thinking he's seen everything there is to see and up against a an alien hunter. God, I hate the subway at rush hour. You know, it's hard enough to find a seat, and if you find one, someone's either pissed in it or throwing up all over it. And he's just killing me, man. Hey, it's me! I look great! No autographs, Pop. Hey, look, there's two seats right there. I told you I was right. This shit never After you. Excuse me, police business. Get out of my way. All right. This is a little more New York than it is Los Angeles. Again, I think this is more of a carryover from the first draft he did, uh, setting this in New York, where it would have, you know, the, using the subways. I think we had more sequences of being in the tunnels and using the subways a little more. No need for that. And this was drawn from uh, all of those incidents in New York where everybody seemed to be carrying a gun on the, on right. the subways. Was it Bernard Getz, the guy who mm-hmm. uh, on the subway? Nobody move! Okay, everybody, just take a deep breath. Loosen your sphincters. We don't need any rush hour Rambos there. Don't be a motherfucking baby. Drop it and sit down. Damn it! That was the poor man's process here, wasn't it, with the uh, lights? Yes, that was on a stage, right. But the actual metro moving through the tunnel was BART in San Francisco, and then the, the signs had been changed. Yeah, we rocked the car, and then we ran the, uh, the light track past the windows to give the illusion of cars still moving through the tunnel. Yeah, I think it was set up on a gimbal on the stage so they mm-hmm. could move it around. So this was pretty tight quarters shooting this. It took, just those few elements took a few days to get all that down.
that Jim we had the predator actually he was much more active within the car and so yes. he's just uh, coming straight on he was bouncing off the walls and the ceilings and it was a much more uh, rapidly progressing uh, scene but when they shot this they actually had to use someone in a suit to be able right. to pull those shots these days you'd be able to just have him going all over the place crawling up on the ceiling and the fact you actually have to put a guy in a red lycra suit to pull those mats it it really limited things yeah it was still very time consuming very labor intensive Now here's another rule of the predator that with Leona. Yeah, he actually senses that she's carrying a child. Even though she's armed and she's part of the opposing uh, tribe, he doesn't kill her because she has a young one inside of her. Originally, we were trying to, um, we had sequences in which uh, Leona was mysteriously ill, or at least was hiding the fact that she was pregnant. We had more of a backstory there that... Uh, didn't make it into the... That's why this comes as a little bit of a shock. Yeah, we had more of a lead-in to this reveal here that made much more sense. Yeah, I think we had a boyfriend uh, she met in a bar, and mm -hmm. but she was trying to keep that relationship on the QT for some reason. Yeah, that's an example of one of those little story elements that if they're cut for time or expediency, it uh, shows up later that it's like a little bit of a mystery as to why she's pregnant. Jerry. She's alive. 
I'm picking up fetal heart tones. This woman is pregnant. Let's move. L.A. County, stack. Stand back. Three, one, two, three. I'm on with it. Who wants to work? Where's Jerry? I don't know. We found his badge. Who got hit this time? Five gang members. Bunch of commuters. Doesn't make sense. They were all armed. What do you mean? It's the chief. Wait here. Yeah. Certainly wasn't a futuristic cell phone. It's a damn nightmare. Civilians this time. Yeah, just like the others. This was a good set. This was on the stage at Fox, wasn't mm -hmm. it? That's one of those sequences where it was much more elaborate of the uh, predator moving around the city and jumping off the cars. But a stuntman actually had to do that. So it was a little bit limiting. He really got into this part. Yeah, he was sort of the archetype of the uh, hardcore action news guy who would uh, get the story at any cost. and bend the truth completely and uh, he was quite popular at the time so he was I think he was a very good choice but you realize that the, an awful lot it was a show because he turned out to be another one of those you know really basically great guys and not nearly as tough as the image he portrays he did have a lot of fun with that part though Again, this sequence was, he was able to track the predator more than we're able to show here. He was visually watching him. Mm -hmm. Again, a bit like if you were watching Spider-Man run from building to building, uh, Danny was following the predator and could, the way we wrote it, he was able to see him a lot more leaping from building to building like being in the jungle. Mm -hmm. Didn't quite come across. Yeah, it was more of an elongated scene. And then we, uh... It was shortened up to give this intro into the warehouse with uh, Gary Busey and his men a little more space. 
that originally was a scene, I think it was written for on top of the Chrysler building in New York. That was the best we could do in Los Angeles. There's not many of those icons. Yeah, these hunting expeditions are, in a way, kind of a, a, a rite of predatorhood, you know, going off and uh, proving that you can do this on your own, and then possibly team hunting after that, but certainly coming to a place like Earth and going off into a jungle and choosing your prey. and You were later going to be judged on how well you did. Um, the idea we had for Predator 2 originally, if Arnold was going to be in it, was the burned-out jungle site of the first one. A new predator would show up, dig around in the ashes, and come up with the predator's arm and uh, replay the videotape, so to speak, of everything that had happened, focus on who had been able to, you know, kill his brethren, and then go track him down, which would have been a lot of fun to, to explore. Ten years ago, one of his kind stalked and eliminated an elite special forces crew in Central America. There were two survivors. They indicated that when trapped, the creature activated... A I'm actually in one of those suits there. I put it on and became one of the That's right. guys with the Geiger counter. <laughs> I had a deep appreciation for what it was like to work in the Predator suit. Boy, it's hot being in one of those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they had a pretty advanced water jacket air conditioning system in the Predator suit, but occasionally it would break down, and uh, Kevin Peter Hall, our actor, he actually uh, he fainted a couple of times from the rapid buildup of heat. It was pretty overwhelming. It was very difficult uh, task to work in that suit. We met him on the set. Yeah. Um, I hadn't first... met him before, and I guess he'd done Harry and the Hendersons, too. So right. He was, yeah. he was experienced with <laughs> putting on one of these outfits, you know. But I had to hand it to him that just getting into one of those environmental suits for a while, it's, it's amazing how hot they are. And you think, my God, this guy climbs into all those appliances and, and then acts. <laughs> yeah, but we had uh, discussions at length about uh, the, the character of the Predator and, and how he might view things and his, his sort of sense of honor and um, uh, especially about uh, how he would fight in a hand-to-hand -hand mode. You know? And we spent quite a bit of time talking to him about that and, and working with the uh, with the stunt coordinator to work those things out. So, And he was always very quick to learn and, and had a, a lot of his own ideas, which, were, which was great, you know, great to work with him. Well, we've prepared a little trap for this predator. We are certain that this being can see in only one spectrum of light, infrared. Infrared. He hunts by seeing our heat. Block the heat and he's blind. These suits insulate all body heat, making the team invisible to the creature. We flooded the packing house with radioactive dust. We've also installed powerful ultraviolet lighting everywhere. The dust adheres to his body, making him visible. Liquid nitrogen. You're not going to kill his asshole. You're going to freeze him. Well, we have to capture him. He's moving. Finally. Grab a seat. Enjoy the show. This is history. Capture and isolation is our objective. Defensive action only on my orders. Power up. Lights on. Let's get him. Switch to ultraviolet. Radio silence. Out. 
Engage ultraviolet units A through J. Yeah, visiting this set, you actually had to wear a respirator with all of this material that was in the air. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these suits were actually working environment suits that had a rebreathing uh, circulatory system on them. I can't remember what the material was, but it was something like cornstarch or something, and they had to keep blowing it and you know, stirring it up. But anyone that visited the set had to wear a respirator. Second level, target's still moving, heading towards the number two stairwell. Playing right into it. Wait a minute. It stopped. one of those things where it's easy to describe what the predator's seeing and not seeing and what they're seeing and not seeing, but visually you have to carry it off, and he's now about to switch to another form of vision. Yeah, he goes through a number of different modes until he hits on the, uh, the right wavelength of light. Kevin Peter Hall, he was... He was a great guy. He really put a lot of thought into the role, and when he first got the role, he went out and studied quite a bit of African dance. And in the first one, you can see a number of the fluid, animalistic-type movements that he uh, infused the physical action of that character with, and uh, I think it made one of the great 
moments of that movie when they're standing there in the water, he and Arnold face to face, and the predator drops his mask, and you see the face revealed, and then he does this particular kind of spread-armed move, you know, that uh, it's part of a Maasai dance, you know, that ha it's part of the lion dance, and he issues that roar, and it's, it's, it's one of the most startling, chilling moments in the movie. It really sold it, and it was brilliant, you know, that he put that in. It was done very, very well, so uh, we got to know uh, Kevin very well, and he was, he was a great guy and a uh, tireless worker. And but he really did care about bringing the character to life, and you can, you can see it. In, in that regard, the Predator did have a personality rather than just being a rubber-suited, you know, monster running around. And he really came to life. That he, he put a lot into it. He was a terrific guy. It was really surprising to, to think that somebody could move around that much. And some of the other stuntmen did some of the other, the trickier things of running across logs and things. But still, it was, as John was saying, the movements that he had, you know, the, the ritual part of preparing to attack somebody or something. He just dreamed all that stuff up. Yeah, he was he was quite a uh, creative dancer. I mean, for somebody who was seven foot four, he was... Uh, uh, he very light on his feet, uh, very facile, very very quick. So uh, he was uh, he was a great choice for the role. Great choice. This was again a lot of hard work because the stuntmen actually had to do all that work. They couldn't just digitally pull it off. It's uh, all practical. This was the element that sort of short-circuited the uh, Predator's camouflage effect and made him visible and sort of equaled up the uh, playing field when Danny finally gets into the building. They're gone. They're all dead. That was a great view of the uh, the spear in its multi-modes. We detailed out in quite a bit early on in the film, but this is the first time you really saw it up close. Water seems to short-circuit his system quite a bit. <laughs> That's what did it in the first one.
sets was rough for the actors too with all of the water they had to work in the rain this was being shot during the winter and it was uh, yeah it was pretty chilly it was, in it there. was cold yeah. plus it was being done at night We always likened this to taking the mask off the Minotaur to see who was really under the mythological creature. The fun of the first movie, of course, was being able to reveal the predator in three or four different stages of uh, a mysterious presence in the jungle, then a camouflage effect, then the real thing, and then the fact that underneath the, the costume was, was something no one had ever seen before. A little hard to introduce something new here. Yeah, it's very difficult to repeat and make it fresh. But if you look back through the history of literature, especially in the mythical aspect, we've always had creatures like the predator and alien, uh, you know, the minotaur and the cyclops and uh, Grendel. And, you know, these creatures have always been around and they represent, you know, the dark side of the things we fear. If we can manifest them in something like you know, a predator or something and we can deal with it, fight it, we're exploring those those fears. That's why to us having something that was more humanoid worked better than having some fantastic space creature because we can identify with a hunter with you know he was humanoid and that the sequence of arnold falling into the water crawling into the mud and uh, totally defenseless and about to be killed there was no hope and then to be bypassed because his heat was blocked by the mud gave him a chance to survive which is the classic hero arc. You've got to almost die before you can really rise up again and, and do battle. And we had talked to Arnold just before we started filming. He wanted to know about this character. And we said that to us, that's what this is about. And to his credit, that's exactly the way he played it. And it was really very realistic in the sense that he was vulnerable. He was a real, you know, real guy.
But it's really exploring the mythic aspect of our culture. There's always been something like that. And to go to Stan Winston's shop and to see the rogues gallery he has there of the Predator and the Alien and the Terminator, you realize these things have become icons. They're like real things. <laughs> it's very humbling to just be dreaming this stuff up and, <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's somebody's actually wearing this outfit and <laughs> doing these things. That was a great effect, very well done. In the first script, the very first weapon that we ever saw the Predator use was a, was a throwing weapon. Right. Which really didn't get used, so we brought it into play in this one. We saw in the first one, at least the way we described it, he had a whole arsenal and he just chose to begin with a throwing weapon, which was like a disc. I think we uh, refined it a lot for this one. I think this chase sequence was originally written a lot more elaborately, but difficult to shoot. oldest gag in the book. We've equaled the playing field a little bit now that the Predator's lost his helmet. He has to use his emergency breather. Didn't we actually hang Danny over the side of a building? Uh uh, Danny for, actually for this did scene. hang over the building. I believe he did, yes. He was a good sport about everything. Okay, pussy face. It's your move. Shit happens.
That was the descent control arresting device. Mm -hmm. That was a different stuntman. That wasn't uh, Kevin Peter. No, that was that was one of the one of the other stuntmen. Now we're onto a set at Fox. The idea here was that the Predator is able to take glass products, silicon things, and make a poultice or a, a patch for a his wounds that, that he could utilize as a uh, piece of technology that actually breaks down the molecular structure of those things into something that he can use. That was something that we had actually, elements of were in the first film that didn't get into the movie, but... Uh, it was great we had a chance to do it here. And this, this sequence with Danny coming down the uh, pipe and losing his gun, and we had to come across that he was just seized with panic, you know, completely. Uh, he had to face his preternatural fear of heights. Back of 30-story life. Here's the medical kit that we had a little bit in the first, but we expanded it greatly with all the gadgets in here. It's a very cool kit. Yeah, we had it described. Each one had a function, and uh, you know, it was a little too much detail to see everything. On the sound effects for the for the creature beginning in the first script, we had a number of instances where we uh, described uh, clicks and trills and various uh, types of uh, utterances and screams and things like that that kind of punctuated the character depending on the situation. One of the things we wanted to do more in this film was to show the predator interacting with normal human beings that he you know, he wouldn't be a threat to. I mean, they, he wouldn't see them as being trophies. So the fun was putting him in this apartment. In the background, wasn't she listening to... Uh, Jeopardy. Jeopardy. <laughs> that, that was one of Joel's contributions, right. that he, he was thought that was hysterical. He'd be hearing the, uh, the Jeopardy jingle and uh, finding a nine-foot alien in their bathroom. This lady was a character actress from New York. She was a real kick. She was very funny. She had a great sense of humor. 
It's one thing to write these things, and then it's another to see them come to fruition and all of the effort and the work and the design and the, you know, everything that goes into making one of these things. And it's kind of humbling to be around in the set and see how much work it's required. I believe we saw it on the Fox lot with the crew. That was the first time we really saw the rough, rough assemblage. It was very interesting. Everybody was, was pretty gratified that it came out as well as it did. And it just got, it got better and a little more uh, complete as the editing process went on. Actually, there's, a, for me, an interesting Hollywood story. When it was first released, I went to Westwood and just wanted to see the audience reaction for the first 10 minutes or so and um, told the usher at the theater who I was and that I just wanted to watch the film for a minute. And he said, sure, of course. And when I came back, he was a young guy from uh, somewhere back east and was out here wanting to get into the film business. And he says, I've got to do this. Here's my number. And... I'd love to be in the film business. And I said, well, good luck. Everybody's got their their way of getting in. And about six months later, we, we were working on a project at Warner Brothers. And this guy came into the room as a, uh, a story executive. And he said, uh, hi, remember me? And I said, yeah, you're the usher. <laughs> he was now giving us notes. We went round and round about how to describe this spacecraft because it's so difficult describing alien technology when such a thing doesn't really exist. Mm -hmm. This had a little kind of semblance to the uh, the bone ship in Alien, mm -hmm. but uh, Larry Paul, our uh, our designer, sort of uh, he, he kind of kept this kind of Central American, almost ancient Aztec motif running through it. That these were ancient beings and they've been coming here for long time. If you look carefully at the at the design of the walls, you can actually see forms of, of creatures, almost like uh, hieroglyphs that are embedded in the walls there. Mm -hmm. A lot of this stuff was carved out of uh, styrofoam. Right. It was really quite a set to walk around in. It was beautiful, especially when they lit it up. Yeah, this obelisk was sort of a touch he added later that he felt it kind of gave it a, a resonance that, that was almost you know ancient earth-like and there is the trophy case which actually kicked off in the mind of the uh, director of the alien versus predator when he first saw this film it was a, a, a great moment for him looking in the trophy case and seeing the skull of the alien right there <laughs> that that he first visualized that he he had to do a, a film about the two creatures coming in contact and fighting each other. So this moment is when the sequel was born. It really gave birth to the uh, Alien vs. Predator comic books because, you know, they're t from two completely different uh, time periods. You know, aliens far in the future, this is 
just barely in the future. And it was something we just dreamed up while we were standing around in the set with seeing the trophy case. We said, you know, we ought to see the uh, alien skull in there. And since Fox owned it, it was pretty easy to do. I think they're in the process of doing AVP 2. I think they're already working on it. Yeah, they're working on the script now. Yeah. I think that's... Mm -hmm. that, that'll be the next one, is those, those two franchises together. But it would be interesting down the line to see a another take on Predator, possibly a historical another, piece. You know? Another incarnation, yeah. We mm -hmm. played around with uh, on the set of doing something historical. What would it be like in a time when you, know, you had nothing but steam engines and flintlocks and you were up against something like this? You know, That could be fun. Plenty of stories. The more difficult ones would be doing something on a foreign planet. That's a little, I think it works better to bring it down here onto to Earth, and something that we relate to. Because that's really what it's Yeah, about. if they're interacting with humans, it always seems best to ground it here you know, this, uh, on this planet. So. Well, it's all about dealing with your own, your own myths and fears. And that's really what these, to me, that's what these things represent. They're aspects of your, your dark side. The ending of this movie, I'm sure that we had different versions. The tricky thing was always, how is it going to be to reveal that there are yeah. other predators? That, yeah, multiple. Is that going to work? What's the best way to do it? I think we right. we went round and round about Yeah, would the whole franchise sort of fall apart, become disbelievable when there was... It was revealed there were more than one, and we always argued that, that it was an ancient race of, uh, of beings... And I, I think it turned out pretty well with this, you know, with the with the ancient one here leading the way. And uh, it gave support, of course, to the uh, to the last film, uh, Alien versus Predator here. I mean, in our mind, we always knew that there was a race of these predators. I guess we originally thought they were more lone hunters, that they, they didn't really work together. Uh. <laughs> Stan Winston had a lot of fun with the variations in the yeah, costumes. Right. Who's next? It was a lot of fun hanging out on the set with the <laughs> all the predators. There's a great picture. They're all sitting around a table playing cards <laughs> with their costumes on. And this moment coming up here where he, he pauses and then and actually gives him a, a token, you know, a trophy, uh, which is a, uh, a matchlock pistol from the, actually from the 1700s. That's indicative of how long they've actually been coming to this planet. Take it.
In the original uh, Predator, we had a spacecraft that the Predator arrived in, and it had a cloaking device. It was much smaller. It was a single-man craft and had a cloaking device so that it could hide in the jungle, and it was actually used in our script. It was a feature at the very end with Arnold interacting with the Predator with the ship, but it was uh, that was something that was cut. So this was the first opportunity to uh, play with the, the idea of a Predator spacecraft. Another great location downtown East Los Angeles. This was near the LA River, wasn't it? There was a big uh, tunnel there, a drainage. Mm -hmm. It was a haven for uh, graffiti artists. Right. And this scene is sort of the bookend to the uh, final one in the first Predator, with the surviving hero almost looking like he's emerged from the neither world, you know. Well, thank you very much for watching. We certainly enjoyed visiting this film again. Yeah, it was great to see it again and uh, relive some of these memories and uh, great people that were involved in this uh, that we, uh, we had so much fun uh, doing this project with.
We watch these films from time to time. Right. They've, they've sort of been kind of cult classics. It's hard to not turn on the television sometime in, late at night and not find one of these playing. But I think we tend to see them just in bits and pieces. We'll watch for 15, 20 minutes and uh, go on to something else or periodically sit down with someone and, and uh, watch the whole thing and, and be reminded again of uh, all the work that goes into it. And uh, We tend to see little elements and details that when we were writing it and then watching it filmed that we thought we might have done better, done a little bit different, you know. And sometimes over the period of time, uh, conceptually, uh, things changed in your mind where you actually thought you had intended something a little bit different, you know. But uh, looking back, I, I think it still holds up pretty well uh, to what we uh, had written and intended in the first place. <laughs> 